Um, it's sad that Bruce isn't here because I know that he's got another project that has just come out um, that I kind of want to shout out for him in his absence. Um, our listeners may know that Bruce and Maggie spent uh, the past, I guess it's been a little bit more than a year ago now, but they spent a year doing the Great Loop and boating around you know, the U.S. and Canada. And they've got a book out now through Pragmatic Stories all about it. It's called Currently Away. Um, and I'll, I'll read you guys the, the tagline now. And it's how two disenchanted people traveled the Great Loop for nine months and returned to the start energized and optimistic. If you are a fan of Bruce and his writing, which I certainly am, I definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, could make a great Christmas present, just saying, throwing that out there. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Uh, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Beam Radio. I am one of three hosts joining you guys today. I'm Sophie DiFanadetto. I am here with Lars Bickman. Hey, Lars. Hello, hello. And Stephen Nunez. Hello. I'm also walking on my new treadmill desk, as you guys can see uh, on this call, although our listeners can't see. So if I sound like I'm doing two things at once, I am, and you can't stop me because I'm obsessed with it. Um, all right, moving on. We do have a very special guest today. I know I say that every time that we have a guest, but I am particularly excited today, and I think you guys will understand why as soon as we introduce them. But before we do, I will hand it over to a word from our sponsor. The sponsor that we have with us today is Lars from Underyord. What is up, Lars? Well, sometimes I wonder if, if this is the good move, the way we do things. It's just like, oh, now we introduce some suspense so everyone <laughs> can just suffer while they hear from our sponsors. Because everyone likes to be interrupted by... a little suffering is totally healthy. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, mostly, uh, I'm actually off doing uh, doing weird experiments. So I've been poking around with like Fediverse things and data pipelines, and like I'm a little bit all over the place currently. Uh, the serious stuff, mostly data pipelines. Uh, the the silly stuff, mostly uh, Fediverse and tracing, Erlang tracing. So, if you want to dig into kind of doing interesting things with data pipelines and perhaps like the Apache Arrow and kind of let's call it postmodern data pipeline because the current the current state of the art is called the modern data pipeline which i find funny or modern data systems because it's like what's the next one then it does become the postmodern data system postmodern data pipeline which i don't know what people feel about that but i I have a weird, weird sense about it. But if you want to do any work in that space, actually do reach out. Uh, I'm deeply into it at the moment. But I think we can break the suspense. Also, we, we do have Groxio <laughs> career field for programmers, uh, but of Bruce course, isn't here. So, so no detail in this update. Yeah, so we'll thank we'll thank Graxio as always, and we'll hear more from them next time. Okay, suspense over. I am thrilled to introduce today's special guest. Um, kind of a holiday treat, if you will. We are recording this just before uh, Christmas, a week or so. We have Chris McCord with us today. Chris, as you guys know, is the creator of Phoenix, of LiveView, and of a very exciting new uh, bit of functionality coming out called Flame, which is bringing serverless to your Elixir app. Something that I actually do think we've sort of all been waiting for. Very much looking forward to dig into that. Welcome, Chris. Hello. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you again. Did you almost just go, 
calling it Christmas? Um, I mean, I did call it Christmas because that's what it's called. So it just doubles as a pun. Uh, excellent. Love Perfect. a good pun. Thank you puns. for that. Wow. Chris, parentheses, wow. McCord. Miss. Um, so Chris, when we have our guests on, we usually like to ask them how they got into Elixir. I feel like we've probably asked you that before though. Um, so I don't know if we want to talk about that or if we just want to hear a little bit about what you've been up to lately in the Elixir and Phoenix space. Yeah, we can go. I mean, I can give it like maybe one tweet worth of how I got into it. Yeah. I was trying to do websites yeah, and rails and do kind of like real time server rendered applications. That wasn't mm -hmm. going to scale or be viable. So I started poking around, read up about Erlang, found Elixir and started tinkering. And I just needed a web framework to accomplish all my dreams. So here we are uh, 10 years later. So, so naturally, short... I want to just write that real quick. <laughs> I'll just build Very it. short history there, but that's how I got into it. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we chatted with uh, Brian Carterella, who I feel like is maybe also part of the story of phoenix and sort of your journey to create and maintain it given the work that you did there while at dockyard so it's it's nice that we get to chat with people that have been involved in creating the frameworks and the communities from from different ends around the elixir ecosystem absolutely yeah and dockyard's still driving the open source elixir space as well they've got uh, live you native efforts and uh, among other things so yeah they're doing doing a good job with community for sure yeah, I'm definitely excited about Live you Native. We haven't talked about it on the show yet since it's such early days, um, but hopefully we'll be hearing a lot more about it in the coming months. Um, while I have you, and before we dive into Flame, and for reasons totally not related to me dreaming of one day finishing this book, Live <laughs> you want to know? Uh, what, what's going on? Like tomorrow, probably? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I really actually wanted it to be like a, Christmas release, but um, mm -hmm. sidetracked is the wrong. The wrong sidetracked is the wrong word. But I <laughs> wanted to do this this whole flame thing for. I, I'm going to say many months, but it's probably been well over a year that I've had like a, yeah. a proof of concept, and uh, I just needed some time to work on it. So I've been Absolutely. a little bit um, not even preoccupied, but basically I've <laughs> I've procrastinated on working on LiveView by working on Flame a bit. But it has mm -hmm. been something I've wanted to like um, get moving and get a start on, and it's a relatively small yeah. effort. Uh, so anyway, that's pushed things back a little bit. But you know, I gave the last talk I gave uh, in Europe was the road to LiveView 1.0. So there's really not mm -hmm. much beyond just like cleaning up the issue tracker and and getting things uh, polished a bit for release. So it's pretty much baked at this point, which should help the the book efforts. So so sorry, but yeah. um, I'm happy there's going to be something. <laughs> All good. Um, well, ready to Flame roll. Has come uh, out with Flame 1 we'll have Monica, a book ready to so. go. So you're Perfect. doing great work. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, yeah, it's all good. Um, I do have one live view question for you that I'd love to chat about before we dive into Flame. It's just kind of a bigger, bigger, bigger picture question, excuse me. Um, how do you feel like live view adoption has grown? Like, what are you hearing from people in the community? And I've had this like little idea, maybe more of a hope or a wish for the past year or so that live view adoption would actually drive Elixir adoption and drive Beam adoption because it is such a compelling web framework. I'm just curious to get your take on that. If you feel like that's something that is happening, will happen. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's happening. I mean, we can talk, uh, this kind of goes into the, the, the flame pattern as well. I do think that 
like we're, we are uniquely suited to solving this kind of like server rendered uh, application problem. And we've seen a ton of other, other communities adopt something similar to live view. In fact, like react, like we put react on the server and even react uh, was like, oh, that's a nice idea. We should put react on the server. Um, and I have it on good authority that like the react team actually like legitimately looked at what live view was doing um, uh, along their efforts to like design the architecture of react server components. So it's like, I do feel like we've kind of changed the landscape a bit and pushing kind of forward this idea, but I do think Elixir is like really uniquely suited to solving uh, this problem. So I think it will ultimately help uh, Elixir adoption. You know, I don't have any like hard stats, you know, we can look at like the GitHub survey about like most love web framework and all that, but I don't have any hard numbers, but I do think like the goal is to, I mean, drive adoption into the stuff I'm building, which is gonna drive adoption into Elixir. And we definitely made a splash among programming at large, I feel like. And it's also very fun to see uh, a company like Superbase, who's selling features of Phoenix uh, and working with like you and Jose and uh, all to build out like super helpful stuff for developers. And I'm looking at the features and it's like, this is mostly just Phoenix. <laughs> They're doing a ton of extra cool stuff, but it's yeah, like, it's, yeah, shipping Phoenix you know, it's features. Like, yeah, it's like offering this amazing stuff that we have uh, in Beam, just like two other communities um, is, you know, a, a lot of their business model, but, you know, obviously there's much awesome stuff they're doing on top of that but um and they're also you know they're great because they're open sourcing you know vast majority of what they've built so i feel like they're they're doing it in a right way but yeah i feel yeah. like it's <laughs> like we're, we're sitting on this just like treasure trove of stuff and you know why not you know get it into the hands of you know people at large yeah that's actually something i hadn't really thought about the way that live view is not only it's not necessarily pushing beam adoption although it's not not doing that either, but it's really influencing and impacting the way that other languages, other frameworks and other communities are moving their work forward too. Um, and I think, you know, you, you mentioned one example with React, but one thing that comes to mind for me is, um, you know, Rails WebSocket functionality, I think what I think was really spurred by LiveView, which came out before, what is it called, Hotwire. Um, and I will hold my tongue on my opinion of Hotwire and, and trying to support some of this functionality in Rails, but I think that's not the only framework that started to become much more interested in real time. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, to, to try to tie this into flame, it's like, I, I, yeah, it's like, we'll end up talking for like 30 minutes and then people are like, what's this flame thing. But I, I do feel like I do want to touch on this, uh, server rendered app space, um, overloaded term. It's like, we've, we've been doing server rendering since, uh, you know, the PHP days. Um, but this idea that like, Elixir being uniquely suited and, and the live view approach being uniquely suited to this space is like, you know, React server components um, is still like following a stateless model. So it's like they have this client and I feel like a lot of the client frameworks are converging on like, let's put more stuff on the server. But everything I've seen is all still stateless request response. Uh, and that comes with a bunch of trade-offs. Um, a big one is like, it's not easy just to send like, you know, bi-directional messages back and forth. So if you just have like, you know, a notification pop up uh, on the server and you want to ha have the UI update, like React server components, not going to do that for you. You have to go through the mechanics of like, oh, I need to start a WebSocket server now and maybe GraphQL subscription and, and do all that stuff. And that's how the majority of these other approaches, whether it's Hotwire, uh, Livewire and PHP, it's like, it's all still like mimicking, like, oh, if you click a button on a web page, we could render part of, we could render something on the server that then patches the page but it's still very much request response. Uh, usually you then have to send like the whole page, render the whole page and send the whole thing back. 
or Cinema just stayed up and sent it all back. So like even like the state of the art um, client side libraries like React server components is just solving, I feel like one piece of this, um, but not solving this like uh, thing what we're doing in LiveView, which is just like HTTP falls away entirely, right? You're not thinking about HTTP. Like my goal is like to just ruthlessly eliminate like layers of the stack from like what I even have to think about. And I feel like these other approaches are like, oh, it's kind of neat to put stuff on the server. It's, you know, lets us uh, solve things more simply, but then you still have to bring all this complexity on top of that. So I do think that Elixir is uniquely suited because we can build, you know, long lived stateful applications, whereas most other platforms are still kind of stuck in this uh, request response uh, space. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll we'll pivot now from stateful to stateless and big reveal. Tell us all about Flame. Well, I guess before we even do that, I'm curious okay. if you could tell us like <laughs> you're uh, blowing up my big reveal. Oh, flame! So well, here's here's, here's a bit of a spoiler for us. So we put titles on these things, so you know, folks know what we're going <laughs> to talk about. No, I don't think this is like an auto playlist. Um, so I I just sort of like a little bit. The best thing, you know, the only thing I know how to do is bring things back to me. Um, so I kind of missed a big chunk of the web. Uh, like I did, you know, I deployed to servers and kind of skipped the whole like functions as a service. So I see that there's a problem to solve. And then I see that you've kind of like removed the problem. Can you sort of talk a little bit about like what problem Flame solves in the first place? Because again, big, big dummy like me, I never had a chance to or a need for functions as a service. Yeah, this is a perfect question. So functions as a service or serverless, which is just a just a silly name um, for a number of reasons. But uh, for me, serverless had uh, two compelling things going for it. So I think I'm going to start, I'm going to level the, um, the things that I think serverless had going for it. Everything else I consider silly. So like if you're building an application in serverless just because you think it's superior in all other regards, I think it's like, it's silly. It's like, oh, I want to write my code elsewhere and um, not be able to run it myself and do all the pay all this stuff. But if you take the good things I had going for it, one is elastic scalability. That's something that I couldn't just like snap my fingers and solve in whatever language I was using, right? So it's like elastic scalability. And then this idea of um, basically idling down resources when they're not in use. So like to me, these are the two things that functions as a service solved. And then that came with like all these trade-offs and it didn't live up to the promise of, oh, it costs less because you're just running a function and there's no server to pay for because it you end up paying, you know, like 10 times the price um, to not run a server. Um, so I think that what we can key in on here is like, if you didn't have a problem of elastic scale and you didn't have this problem of like, I want um, really cheap, like short-lived resources, then like you wouldn't, serverless shouldn't have been like in, in your mind. And if it was, and you were building stuff because you thought it was like better, then you just bought on this complexity for no reason. So my uh, original claim was like, in, in the blog post I wrote was like serverless had a couple of cool ideas. Elastic, elastic scale is easy. And hey, we can you can just pay for what you use. Um, and then to me, that hasn't lived up in, in practice. It's like you hear of all these companies that like just rewrite their service and just just pay for an Elixir server. And they, they're paying like, you know, like 1% of the price they were paying on serverless. Um, so that's in my mind, the, like, what is this function as a service space, uh, doing for me? And it's like lacks of scale. Um, and, uh, for me, I didn't have a good answer in, in Elixir. So my Elixir application scaled super well. I was super happy with them. You didn't have to run that many servers, but if you wanted to run like really expensive CPU workloads, I didn't have an answer to this. Like, uh, what, what would I do if I needed to like 
encode a video or run some ML model elastically. Um, and it bothered me because I didn't, I, this whole function as a service space isn't just, oh, run your code somewhere. It's like run your code somewhere, pay every time you run that function to get the result out of that function. You know, you have to put it on like SQS, you pay for that. And then like, you have to get it back into your app. So then you write some code to consume from SQS and, and bring it back up. So it's like at every step you pay this tax of like just running this function somewhere else. Um, and that doesn't even talk about like all the development complexity. Uh, so for me, it's like, I wanted to have an answer to this. Um, and flame was uh, my effort to kind of lay waste to the serverless idea. And it's not just about like, um, you know, an alternative. It's not like we're running a function as a service in Elixir. It's like, I'm trying to brand this as a programming pattern uh, at large that Elixir can just do extremely well. But the idea is like, we shouldn't have to do any of this function as a service serverless stuff all this proprietary runtime stuff, we should just be able to granularly uh, scale parts of our app. And that's the idea uh, of Flame. And this tracks with some of the needs and uses of serverless I've, I've seen in the wild with uh, like one client of mine, they needed to do image upscaling for OCR uh, before they did their processing. And that was like an image magic job that would occasionally go out of memory and you didn't want to have like these massive amounts of uh, memory available on the regular application host and it's like it's a very noisy neighbor to bring in uh, that type of processing on the application host like the beam is pretty good with parallel work and managing that but if you bring in like ffmpeg or Im like image magic and you're doing something heavy it's just like you're gonna run out of resources eventually so being able to offload it to some other uh, place where it can misbehave on its own that's uh that's a useful pattern so i definitely see where this is where this is coming from not everything is within the beams scheduling <laughs> well it's not even it's not the beams fault it's like you know, the, the image magic use case is a perfect example of this like it's a CPU, CPU bound, IO bound thing and like the beam can schedule around it, but it's just like, you don't want to run like a heavy CPU bound workload in the critical path of your app of like your, your UI or your API server. It's like, you don't want to like sacrifice latency for like end users to do this work that, um, you know, is running on the same, the same, like you said, noisy neighbor problem. So like we've typically handled this, uh, if we're not using serverless, I've also been bothered by the approaches we've taken, like to quote unquote auto scale. It's always been like, oh my God, start more web servers or oh my God, start more background job workers. So it's like, we've just scaled our whole app up at the top level, um, like haphazardly, like I hope this works better. So it's like, it doesn't make sense the way we've handled auto scale outside of the serverless space because like it hasn't been granular. It's just been like, we scale the thing that we can scale and that's like more web servers or just like more open workers or sidekick workers. And it's like, that's to me like a completely wrong level of granularity because there is no granularity. You're just like start the whole world and hope that like this one thing that was CPU bound uh, happens to scale well. So it's like flame is trying to bring us back to like the granular scale at the like function level, except it's just running your app. And we can talk about how that works, but. I'm trying to uh, have people think about like their whole app is like this uh, thing that you can just run in small pieces. Yeah. So for the people who haven't read the introductory post, and I do recommend that people do, and there's also a video, uh, we'll put them in the show notes. What does Flame give the Elixir developer that, that tries to use it? 
the lead-in is like, what if you could just wrap your uh, any function in your application uh, or any code in your application, if you could just wrap it in a function, like a closure, and then that piece of the app ran in like a short-lived infrastructure and you did nothing else. Uh, so this is like the idea of Flame is like, it's a long acronym, but it's a fleeting Lambda application for modular execution. Uh, happens to tie in well with like, you know, the Phoenix mythology because uh, it lives under the Phoenix org. Uh, it also kind of like, you know, I want to burn this idea of serverless to the ground. Uh, that works there as well. And I also, you know, it's this thing that starts up and, you know, burns brightly and quickly, runs hot job when it has nothing left to do, it extinguishes itself. So the acronym uh, does a lot there, but what I really wanted to do with it is to say like, it's like we're kind of co-opting this idea of a Lambda. So it's like, we want to take this idea of what you're doing with functions as a service and just kind of say like, what if it's your whole app and you can just kind of slice and call into just modular parts of your app on different infrastructure. Uh, so this is the idea of Flame, just like instead of doing like, oh, move your code to some other service, figure out how to manage the deployment, figure out how to get data into this uh, serverless thing, data back out, talk to the app. Now it's like, no, you just literally wrap any code in your app in a flame.call. That function gets lifted out and sent to a new running infrastructure. It runs there, it's running your whole app. So it just does everything it did previously, even like database inserts, pub sub broadcasts, and you can get a result back. And then with Elixir, we can do some of the neat things like process placement, which we can talk about. But the idea is just like take your current app code that you already have, and granularly scale just those parts using the same infrastructure that your app's running on. So how did you do it? At the risk of trying to explain a lot of technical concepts over a podcast with no visual aids. Uh, I don't, yeah. yeah, maybe high level, like what are some of the implementation details and what were some of the hard parts to get this working? Yeah, so, I mean, Beam, Beam is the answer. It's like, uh, I don't know why this hasn't been done yet. It's kind of one of those things that like, I didn't do anything really special at all here. Um, you know, my goal is that other languages do uh, kind of adopt this pattern. So I'm trying to brand this outside of Elixir and it's similar to LiveView. It's like, I, I do think this idea can catch on, but I feel like we're, we're going to be the, uh, the Beam languages are the only ones that can really do this extremely well. Uh, but internally, it's basically uh, it, the whole idea with Flame is it can work on any host that has some kind of programmable API that says, hey, I want to start an app server somewhere with the code that I'm currently running. Um, so that, that'll work on like any Kubernetes setup. DigitalOcean has a droplet API. Uh, Fly.io, where I work, with, has a built-in uh, uh, Flame backend. It, you, know, you give it an uh, API request saying, I want to run this Docker image, and it runs it. Uh, so there's this backend idea that just somehow provisions uh, a new instance for you on your infrastructure where the app's running. It gets your app code there somehow. That's a for Fly. That's just your Docker image. For Kubernetes, it's you know however they do it. I, I honestly don't know. Um, but then once you have this instance up and running, it's all Beam that takes over. So when the instance starts up, it just it's starting your whole app. Right, you're running an Elixir, an Elixir release. It boots up. It's starting your whole app just like normal, except there is a, a flame process running that knows it's in this like flame child mode. And then it will contact the parent that started it over distributed at Erlang and say like, hey, I'm alive. And then back on the parent node, it says, hey, I'm happy that I'm happy to see you here. Here's this function in all the state that it closed over. Please execute this for me. Um, and that's essentially it. I mean, the rest is just um, that I wrote is just like bookkeeping. Like, um, you know, there's like a pool uh, that starts um, these runners, um, whether eagerly or elastically, and then scales them down as they stop doing work. 
you know, we're, we're having to monitor a bunch of remote processes and remote nodes, but that all, it's all using like Erlang primitives. Like the only dependency of Flame is Rec, an HTTP client. Um, and we don't, wouldn't even need that technically. We could have used like Erlang's built-in HTTP client, but that's kind of, kind of potato quality. Um, so <clears throat> the answer is that Beam is doing a lot here and it's really just taking advantage of the Beam primitives. Like uh, the fact that we can take a function, any code in your app, any anonymous function, all the state that that anonymous function captures and closes over, Erlang just serializes that. Any rich data structure, anything, it will serialize that when we send it over to run on another node. I didn't have to write any code to do that. Like literally like someone on Hacker News asked, like, I'd be really interested to hear about the implementation of how they serialize the closures. And I'm like, if you link them to the code, it's just like send PID function. Like that's it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's like the intro to, you know, in the basic Elixir guides where you're like, how do I send messages between processes? Just do that in yeah. IEX. So we're, uh, the implementation is like, the, the whole library is quite small. Like I said, it's really just the idea of a pool. It's like, you want to start these um, resources and they start up themselves and then they'll, they idle themselves down. But instead of being more one-to-one, -one, like functions as a service, you know, they try to abstract the server. Where in this case, it's like we could do you know many concurrent operations on a runner. So like this, you're not running your you're not running a whole new instance to to uh, generate you know rescale one image in this case, right? You're gonna say I want to do you know of hundreds or a thousand of these. You give it a max concurrency, uh, just like kind of like task async stream. So you kind of f fine grain how many operations you want to run concurrently on each of these ephemeral instances. And there's a pool that says um, you know I I want to have up to X amount of these running, I can do minimum of zero to get scale to zero behavior. And then the pool is going to grow as, as the demand grows. Um, so yeah, Flame, the implementation is mostly just me writing this pool and making sure that uh, it works correctly. And then distributed Erlang is doing all the, all the interesting bits. Yeah, it's kind of wild. Like if you look at the Flame backend code, and you should, it's like 200 lines of code. And it's all just readable or like, again, the only thing you see here that's out of the ordinary is that call to rec. That's like an external dependency. The Fly backend is 200 lines of code. Uh, the Kubernetes backend um, that someone put out five days after I kind of promised this will work anywhere. Um, it, it's like 500 lines of code, no extra dependency. And it's because like Beam gives us all this stuff for free. So like the Kubernetes backend didn't have to say, uh, you know, how do I cluster the nodes once I start this new instance somewhere? It's like, no, it just does a node connect. And the, the flame code does handles like the clustering in that it just does node connect back to the parent. And that's it. So it's like, there's very little uh, glue to like make this work pretty much anywhere. As long as you can just say, give me a new server, get my app code there. Uh, so I'm interested to see kind of where this goes. Like you can kind of almost shop around like where you want to run your elastically scaled app. And then it could be, you know, pretty much anywhere. And the code's not going to change other than like your, your app configuration. Yeah. And credit to Michael Ross for, uh, for shipping the Kubernetes backend immediately. <laughs> Uh, it's fun to, to have a slightly smaller community. You, I, I know that guy. <laughs> I got, I've spoken to him. Uh, people keep popping up. Yeah, I appreciate it too, because I, I didn't want to solve that because I'm not in Kubernetes land. So it's like, you know, it's like <laughs> something I really wanted to have, but not own because I would have to go yeah. become a Kubernetes expert. Um, and then the other thing I'd like to talk about with Flame specifically. So Flame, this idea of like, calling code somewhere else. It's like a, it's like a remote procedure call that happens to also ephemerally run your app and you call RPC to it. Um, we have this idea of like a 
synchronous call. So any code can just get the response back, just like any other synchronous code you had. There's cast, just like gen server cast is fire and forget. And then specific to beam will be process placement. So you can do a flame place child and this would work anywhere you did like dynamic supervisor star child, task supervisor star child. And this is basically elastically scaled uh, process placement, which is really interesting. So it's not just about running these like stateless uh, box of code. It's like, I want to place you know, like in my demo, it's like I have this FFmpeg process that uh, transcodes video as the chunks come over the server. So like you have a process up and running and it's going to work the same way on the elastic pool. It's like I allow up to X amount of these things to run. And then as those processes die, the pool will like idle itself down. So there's some really interesting things we can do on the Elixir side. And because processes are location transparent, you can just almost always, uh, at least in most cases, start a process somewhere else. And then if it's sending messages back to uh, the calling code, which the only way it can communicate is to do that, and then everything will just work. So really you can do stateful code and still have it run somewhere else on the cluster and change nothing, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's... That's wild. I hadn't actually looked at the uh, at that bit, but that's in there now. Yeah, it's in the demo video. I do like uh, as the video is being uploaded uh, from the live view, I will uh, generate thumbnails as the chunks come over the wire. So I start start FFmpeg, send IO to it, it and I uh, get IO back out of the port. Uh, so like nothing touches disk. Like on the live view upload side, it goes straight into F mm -hmm. FFmpeg uh, process. IO comes out of it. I look for PNGs in that, and then I send those PNGs to the client. So you can do, and like nothing touched disk there. So it's like, that's kind of stuff we, that we can do in Beam is just outrageous, right? Like imagine how you do that in serverless, like probably put it to S, direct to S3, that S3, you pay for that, the S3 triggers a Lambda, you pay for the Lambda trigger firing, you pull that thing down from S3, do the transcoding, how do you get it back to the browser, put it on SQS, put it back into S3, I don't know, do both probably, maybe yeah. bring an Amazon SNS to do like a pub sub thing. And it's like, for us, we don't even think about it. Send a message. Yep. Yeah. That, that's something I really appreciate about building on like the Beam and Phoenix specifically really leverages that like Phoenix PubSub. I use that all the time, regardless if I'm using Phoenix or not. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely. Just like, yeah, it's slightly more convenient than PG, like calling PG directly. Uh, and it doesn't smarter things, but it's just like, yeah, this thing needs to talk to something. I don't, I haven't even decided what, what will be picking up this message later. I just know the message needs to go out because I'm, I'm going to do something with it, but it's going to be a different part of the app that does. Uh, and just that everything follows the same pattern, essentially gen servers all over the place and uh, just message passing. And everything is built that way. Yeah, but I, I want to touch on like the complexity a bit because I think the um, there are like a lot of proponents of serverless that will say that like it, it's simpler, but like the promise of serverless was supposed to be it, it like handles this elastic scale simply. But like in, in the post, I talk about like you have to bring in complexity, like in an effort to like make things less complex, you add more complexity. Like it's like counterintuitive, but it's like yes, I can run. Elastic, uh, let's say, uh, image magic jobs in Lambda. I can do that easily. That is true. But then, how do I communicate with that Lambda, uh, both getting data in and dating data out of it? That's where, like, you then pile on this complexity just to make that work. So it's like in an effort to like 
say, hey, this is simple. I don't have to worry about elastic scale. Like you end up adding all this complexity to do it. So Flame, the idea is like you just write your code naively and then you want to elastically scale part of it. It should be the same consideration as like running a task. So it's like, for me, it's like my thought process when I'm running code should be like, should this run concurrently? Oh, task async or put it in a process. And then it's like, should this run elastically? Flame call, flame place child. And just like if you want to bring in like a background job, like should this be durable? And it's like, oh, well you can bring in Oban. So it's like three levels of concern in my code now just become like library considerations. And then I think about nothing else as far as like all this like monstrosity of serverless and dependencies. So when I first read about Flame, I was like, okay, this is cool to kind of like run expensive jobs elsewhere, right? It's like it's like RPC, but with like the idea of elasticity and you know optimal usage of resources. And I was like, oh, this might be interesting for you know, we got a bunch of ML stuff happening with NX and we've got a bunch of trained models. And I said, oh, that'd be interesting because you could then like kick off a process with with uh, with Flame and run something else. But then the thing that kind of like was a bit of a snag was it sounds like with Flame, we're running kind of a portion of the application we're currently calling from. And I would imagine that there might be some applications. So a lot of the ML stuff has big model files and whatnot that you kind of don't want to send up every time you start a web server. It does is Flame the right tool for this, or is is it a totally different problem? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the answer is like yes and no. It's like Flame can actually be really interesting for running these elastic like ML workloads. So like with Fly, one example is I can run my Fly, let's say app, my web servery stuff is not going to be running on GPUs because those things are expensive, and then I can list in my Flame pool like the actual Fly. Um, uh, instance type I want to run. So I can start my app in both like regular mode and also like I want to run it on a GPU now inside Flame. And that works. Um, but then you have this pesky situation of how do I actually get these like huge model files and assets around. Uh, so if you're doing, let's say, uh, moderately sized um, models, you can just bake that into your Docker image. So this answer is like quite nuanced, but if it's possible to like pre-bake them at build time into your Docker image, then a lot of problems become simpler because then when the app starts up, if it doesn't load the model, you pay the price of like this Docker image is larger, but you're not like loading that into memory and you don't even have to start NX serving, which isn't going to do like the, you know, sometimes it can take like 10 seconds to load like a, you know, whisper uh, medium model. So you can still ship those uh, assets around and only actually load them um, into GPU memory uh, when NX starts up, uh, when it boots XLA behind the scenes. Uh, so that works really well. That'd be the simplest, like you don't even have to think about it. Um, some people will put their uh, model assets on S3 or some other object storage. And then when the app starts up, they will pull them down from object storage uh, on demand. So that's another option, but then you're obviously like paying to pull them down. So it's like, uh, this is a nuanced answer. It can be done on flame. Uh, simplest would be to put them in the Docker image. Um, if you don't do that, you have to figure out how to get them there. And usually that becomes, you pull them from somewhere. Uh, but it will just work kind of with the same model where you just start the app up. It looks for some kind of environment variable saying like, oh, I'm actually running in ML mode, you know, and then if I am an X uh, serving gets added to my supervision tree, that might be it. But maybe I also need to fetch these uh, model things from, from somewhere else. Yeah. And when you're talking about the kind of, well, the small LLMs, I guess the 7B uh, level, uh, then you're talking about like 10 to 13 gigs. <laughs> Which is 
inconvenient yep. amount to it do is that. inconvenient i mean you can yeah. like at least on like five docker images we can actually support that now i think for a while we had like a six gig hard cap or something um so we do we can do you know i, I would say 12 13 gigabyte images but then obviously you're incurring the cost to like ship those around yeah. as a user you're not incurring that cost but your startup time is maybe slower just by virtue of like literally getting the you know if you this is a implementation detail answer but like the flame um when you place a child on flame it's going to start a flying machine um that docker image is actually cached on like all the all the real servers we run we call like hosts so like if if you're doing a child placement and there's capacity on the actual host the parent is running on or another flame child is running on uh, that startup time can be very fast because we we literally have that docker image on that host uh, if it's got to be sent to a new host, we will pull that from durable storage and place that. And then you might pay the, the network cost of like, you know, getting that from durable storage into the new host and cached there. So like, you know, if you start shipping 20 gigabyte images, you know, it's, you're not going to get that for free uh, network speed wise. But I think for as long as possible, if you could just kick the can down the road on this complexity of where do I download my files, then then that works great. Otherwise, yeah, I think people typically just reach for S3. Yeah. And this is also not a solved problem in Lambdas, I imagine. Yeah, I honestly don't know what they do. They probably just pay for the Amazon um, ML service per run yeah. on, you know, they, Amazon probably shrink wraps it and just, I know Cloudflare does that. Like you, you don't have that problem because you just pay for, you don't run anything yourself. Uh, I, I don't even mean that facetiously. Like <laughs> I do kind of, but um, this problem isn't a problem because you just pay a uh, proprietary API to do it to solve these things for you. Yeah, to keep the model around and something ready to run yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly what we're doing here. This is just because like, I actually, I've been playing with Fly GPU stuff. Um, one other option is you run, uh, and it work, it's harder to get working with this flame idea, but you would, uh, you have, Fly has this idea of volumes. It's like, uh, it's like literally a file volume. It's not like a durable, um, block stores like S3, it's like literally somewhere you have a, a volume. Um, you can create a volume, uh, cache all your uh, ML assets there. And then we have volume uh, forking where you can basically just like quickly copy that. So uh, outside of the context of Flame, one of the um, patterns that you would use to scale this is like you would start a new machine and then fork the volume that you had and then attach that to the machine. So like when it started up, it would just have all that. Um, that would be relatively quick, but then in this elastic scale scenario, you would have to, like the flyback in today doesn't uh, support, in flame doesn't support the idea of attaching a volume. So we would have to add that kind of idea. And then you get more into like um, volumes live with the machines they're attached to. So you'd have to clean volumes up. So I don't know that that's necessarily the right path in, in this case. I just wanted to call that out that um, people typically have solved this by just like put the assets somewhere and then quickly copy them on the, onto the new servers um, instead of having to go fetch them, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I could imagine it might just be a separate fly backend that someone develops at some point if they need, if they actually need volumes and want to deal with the cleanup. Um, you could. I still think object storage cached in the region is probably going to be the best bet because that's essentially like a volume fork. It's like you're forking the volume in that data center and. Um, if you can have that data already in that region, it's essentially going to be in that data center. So I think object storage, as long as it's cheap enough, would probably be the, the simplest answer here. It just depends on how quickly you're starting and stopping these things. Like in, for most ML workloads, if, if users aren't familiar, 
uh, I've only become recently familiar with like actually trying to run these things myself. Like the, like the start, I mean, one, the servers are really expensive. <laughs> yeah. um, the servers are way less powerful than you'd think as far as like, like I was running like a, Ply has like a A100 NVIDIA cards. And I just assumed that like these LLM models, like you could pack a lot of like batched requests through these g huge GPUs, but it's like, no, you send like a few prompts at a time to the GPU and that thing runs at like 500 watts of energy consuming, like as it's pecking out those words, like just imagine there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole GPU card in, a, in like on open AI servers somewhere uh, or Microsoft servers, like just burning hot, just churning like a few user prompts. So this is all to say that like these, these GPU workloads, you typically aren't like starting them up and down super quickly because just starting them and loading the model into memory takes like tens of seconds in a lot of cases. So it's like in, in most of these elastic scale workloads, I think it's more, it, it's less of like quickly scale up and down. It's more like in my mind, like you're trying to plan for like, look at the trend of scale and then you start up a few and it's more like they're, they're much more long lived is what I'm trying to say. So I don't think it's uh, an issue necessarily to say like start up and then copy from S3 because you're probably not doing that hundreds of times a day. It's like, so it's, it's much longer workload is what I'm trying to say. Uh, that tracks with my experience as well. Like GPUs and models are incredibly inconvenient in many ways. Like we, yeah, we have a good you, system for them. That's if you can just get it running successfully. Yeah. There's like so many layers of this that I can see why companies shrink wrap this stuff and, and charge for it. Uh, I do think yeah. that we'll get there. Like it's going to be mostly turnkey, I think, on the open source world sooner than later. But I do see why you just shrink wrap this and, and, and charge for it because yeah, just getting things running without like puking with NVIDIA errors and CUDA versions is uh, a remarkable feat. And that's like before you even have like, oh, and well, how do I actually efficiently get the, the mod files <laughs> everywhere? So I'm curious, you've mentioned that this, you consider this a pattern and you would love to see people implement it elsewhere. Do you really think people can? It seems much, much harder in many other ecosystems. You mean like without the beam? Yeah, yeah that's I my do. question. So, yeah. It's, it's uh, a setup, Chris. You're trying to set yeah, people I up. Think, oh, you're trying like, to yeah. gonna make them like you try. I guess you need the beam. Yeah, it's not like, you know, it's not. Yeah. So my goal, like, I mean, if at the end of the day, we just have like a really nice building block in Beamland called Flame. Um, and I, then that that's great for me and people use it. But I, I do think like, the success would be that this idea catches on just because I, I think that the serverless space is just silly in a lot of ways and like the complexity we bring on because we're led to believe it's like simpler is is something I, I do want to like just call out. So I think that it can be done elsewhere. Uh, you can't do process placement pretty much anywhere else, um, but you should be able to do synchronous calls and async uh, operations, uh, but the libraries are going to be way harder to write. So. I think it can be done. It can only be done on languages with a real uh, concurrency primitive. So like this can't be done in PHP and Ruby uh, at all. I mean, the closest you could get was like your job queue, which already has kind of like some of these job queues have elastic scale built in. But like uh, if your only way to do concurrency is to throw things into Sidekick, then um, this is just not going to work. Uh, you have to have the ability to like start something and then get a result from it uh, in the, in the code that starts it. And you don't think it's good enough to just do one concurrent <laughs> piece of work on each node? Just one. I mean, well, it can't even work. Like if you just imagine like this idea of like, you can't do 
blocking work in a in a rails controller still to my knowledge um then you can't do a flame call because like you can't like you can't call into any expensive work even if it's not inside a flame right it's like you just can't do it so it's like if, if you can't do that already your answer to do any expensive work is already your durable job queue even if it doesn't need durability so if we take languages that don't have uh, a reasonable concurrency model out of uh, the equation, then it can be done elsewhere. Uh, it's just going to have to be a lot of, you're going to have to rewrite like half of what Beam is doing for us for free. So, um, you know, I, I feel like Rust to go, uh, JavaScript could do this and they could do it well. It's just the libraries are going to be much more massive because you basically have to do the RPC yourself, you have to do uh, mm -hmm. node monitoring yourself. You have to do this idea of like remote process monitoring. You have all that orchestration, uh, clustering, right? How do you like, you have to bring in some library to get the nodes to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. um, so it can be done. And I think it actually can be done well and packaged in a library that you still get 90% of the benefits. Uh, they, they can't, I don't, I don't think any other language to my knowledge of them, ones I mentioned, they can't serialize a function with a state it closes over. So the ergonomics will be slightly more of a pain. Like in JavaScript, um, you could move the, your modular code that you wanted to run elastically, you'd have to put that in a new file and then you could import that file and call it with serializable arguments, which is still way better in my opinion than like all the serverless stuff of talking to the function, getting the result back out somehow in the app. Like you can get 90% of the benefits, ergonomics will be not as good and the libraries are going to be probably a thousand times more complex but it can be done <laughs> and i hope it's done i guess we'll just have to live with that yeah we'll just have to use flame um but this there i feel go. like is the recurring theme of working in elixir and certainly working in the phoenix space and i think that this is something that you've done like exceptionally well in phoenix and live you too chris like you're you're taking advantage of these beam primitives. You're standing on the shoulders of OTP, which is already, like you said, very ergonomic. It's kind of baked into the runtime itself, a lot of these pieces of functionality. But you've carried that theme through to Phoenix, to LiveView, to Flame, which is you're still putting those ergonomics front and center. You're still making it really easy for developers to reason about and reach for these tools. And I think you're right that it's not impossible, of course, to to do stuff like this in other languages and frameworks, but you're missing that ergonomics. And one of the natural outcomes of those ergonomics is just developer experience and the accessibility of these tools to developers who are, you know, more on the novice end of the spectrum. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I love about Elixir as a language, these frameworks, about the Elixir community. Um, yeah, I think that's the running theme that we see here. And I, I definitely appreciate it. And I appreciate that that's the perspective you've taken to this work that you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, I think that it, it goes with the theme of like, uh, uh, I think we mentioned it earlier, but like solving uh, a problem versus removing the problem, where it's like I view is like, mm -hmm. I'm not writing the routes, I'm not writing the controllers, I'm, I'm not thinking about HTTP calls or serializing the response, like I just write my code. And it's like, the fact that all that is a concern isn't even in my in my head almost all of the time. Um, so I, I want to apply that that same mindset to um, to like elastic scale and serverless. And I think like it definitely helps from like it helps, I think, from the newcomer perspective. But I think it just for all programmers, it's like why, you know, if we can just remove the problem entirely, then we can just ship what we're trying to ship. And and that's what Flame is doing in this case. It's like, you know, instead of like serverless, they, they have all these proprietary services which do interesting things. 
but it's like they provide all these solutions for you that you can package up and uh, help you build a, a solution. Or in our case, like you can just write Elixir code and like the elastic scale becomes like the problem's just gone. You're just like, oh, flame.call. Like, like I said, I want it to be as boring as, oh, I need task async here. It's like, I want it to be that boring. Like, oh, this is heavy, flame.call. And I just, I continue writing my code. Mm -hmm. So it's like the problem is just like gone now. And that's what I want to catch on. Whereas like, to me, those are like the most powerful abstractions. Um, and that's that's what I'm aiming for here. And it just happens to be Elixir's incredibly well suited here. Yeah, I, I love that mentality. I kind of feel like I want to pull this quote out. Um, but it's like you feel like the, the right approach is one that doesn't, like you said, solve the problem, but it removes the problem. Uh, and that's yeah, and I what, stole that from Jose. Yeah, that's the dream. So, so <laughs> yeah, I can give okay. him credit for that. Through, he, through he said that to me. To Jose. He said yeah, that to me. And that's I was kind like, of that that's same exactly. satisfaction of like, yep. yeah, yeah. I think that's a really cool perspective. And when you put it in that, when you put it into those words, it really makes sense when you think about some of the tools that you're providing here. And it does kind of harken back to like the fundamentals of Erlang because initially they set out to do something that was very, very ambitious at the time. Um, yeah. And it's like, okay, we want to do, we want to do concurrency, not at the, at the time, not parallelism, but concurrency and distributed computing to machines connected by metal, but still two concurrent machines. And we want it to be highly available, consistently low latency, so soft real time, all of that is like, we're tackling this incredibly ambitious approach to building reliable systems. And like we're building primitives for that. And by solving those hard problems, uh, like they could have gone entirely sideways and um, have been a footnote of history, like many, many systems have been. <laughs> but it turned out like the world also went that direction. And because they tackled some really fundamentally tricky problems and gave them good abstractions, that's what we're building on still. and they've removed entire classes of things that other languages and other runtimes have to fiddle with. And um, it's also trade-offs. And I think there's, I'm sure there will be trade-offs with Flame. It's like, oh, but it's not as nuanced or maybe it's not as quick to start or whatever compared to uh, a Lambda. Um, especially a minimal like JavaScript to start, like, yeah. I do. I, I want to touch on that briefly. Yeah. So this it. did come up. Um, it's like on fly, at least it's three seconds to start like a stock Phoenix application and have it doing work for you. If you scale the pool elastically. Uh, so for like a cold start uh, for me, that's incredible. But um, people in the Hacker News comments are like, oh, well, my Lambda <laughs> could start in 500 milliseconds. So next. Um, but this is like, uh, so one, I mean, if we can make it faster, uh, that would be fantastic. So maybe we can optimize some things at, on the infrastructure level, but, uh, people need to remember that like Elixir and Erlang applications have this amazing, um, treasure of like application startup and supervision trees where I can have, uh, hot runners in the pool, uh, running, uh, before I start serving web, web traffic, just by putting the flame pool above my web server. That means the app will start up, and if I configure it to run uh, to warm up, warm up two of those, that means I'll never hit a cold start on my pool uh, during like a, a cold deploy. So like the, the flame pool model 
I think can hide a lot of this cold start. Uh, then the only cases you hit uh, potentially queue users on these three second starts is as you grow the pool. Uh, so today uh, the pool growth logic is, oh, we're at capacity, start a new one. So I think as we, um, as we tune that, we can start doing like, you know, uh, basically more grain, not granular, more uh, intelligent growth based on like, as the rate of um, jobs are coming in, actually start them preemptively. But in general, this 500 millisecond is like not one-to-one -one because we're starting one runner. Usually they're already hot by the time your app starts and then they're servicing, you know, dozens or hundreds of um, operations versus just like one-to-one. -one. Yeah. Three seconds is not bad for, for like for doing some FFmpeg work. Generally, right. You wouldn't your whole, even yeah, bother. Your whole app, your whole app running your running your database connection pool. Uh, if you want running PubSub, right? Like it's not just yeah. It's like it's everything, right? It's just pretty incredible. Yeah, and just to to wrap up that thought, like fundamentally, um, like Erlang was built with certain trade offs. It was supposed to be great for services and for concurrent use and all of this that makes it incredibly useful for what we're doing like building web systems and it does have some trade-offs it's not a number crunchy thing apparently jose wants to st stomp that completely with yeah, nx but think we've, I think yeah, we've yeah, killed uh, that notion yeah. now elixir itself uh, and erlang itself does not crunch numbers all that well but uh, there are also escape patches everywhere, which is kind of the, the whole deal. It's like, yeah, as long as there are solutions to getting stuff done, the main case should be fantastic. And then you should have options. And it sounds like Flame is straight down that path of like, oh, yeah, you need to offload some work. Here, go for it. Yep. And then you're in, in dev and test, we didn't talk about, uh, it just runs the local backend, which is just your local laptop or CI server. So it's not these like, you know, how do you test your serverless stuff? Most people just don't. <laughs> or you <laughs> run like all of uh, simulated AWS in a Docker container, or you just connect it up to, to AWS and pay them to like test your code and develop your code. So it's like, for us, it's like literally just your app code running. Um, when you're not in production, it just runs locally. So it's like all of those other problems and dev and test fall away. And then like, you know, the, the goal is like my code base too, you know, should live for like years and years. So it's like, even if hosts go away or I want to move my app, that same flame code is just going to work wherever I take it. And let's say that like I move it to a host for some reason that doesn't have um, this portable API, like it would still just run the local backend. So it's like, it's you're not buying into any of this lock-in. It's like literally just running uh, Elixir and Beam and you can run that somewhere, then you can run your app 10 years from now. And hopefully someone will build out a um, Amazon-based backend at some point, which will just ship more laptops to you for... <laughs> well, yeah, <the laughs> Kubernetes, I mean, jokes aside, out. Kubernetes, you, you should be able to run this on EC2 or anywhere. Um, but the funny thing is, like, you could make a Flame, uh, you can make a Flame AWS Lambda backend. <laughs> like, um, someone brought that up and it's like, I think it could be made to work. It's like, I don't know why you would ever do that, but it's like... Technically, yeah, it's like anything that can run like a container and start it. Um, I was, so, I was thinking yeah. more of scaling your local dev environment just by shipping <laughs> oh, more I laptops. See. Yeah. Yes, that, that works too. Okay. Probably cool. costs just about as much. All right. I think we got to wrap up. Uh, thank you so much for your time.
um yeah i'll just repeat the thank you um thank you chris for not just coming and joining us today but for you know making phoenix and live view and flame very excited to see what people are going to get up to with flame next um yeah just a big thank you for joining us this was such a great conversation it was so cool to kind of peek under the hood of what you've been working on um always deeply satisfying to hear like oh this was possible because the beam is so awesome that is absolutely a recurring theme of conversations on this particular podcast um yeah i'm sure we'll have you back again and i can't wait so thanks for joining us thanks thanks for having me thank you to lars and steven for co-hosting today thank you to our sponsors underyard and groxia which is career fuel for programmers So yeah, I think that's it from us and we will catch you all next time on Beam Radio.